are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site. The following podcast may contain language and discussions of a frank and adult nature, and spoilers regarding the films discussed are always to be expected. Thank you for joining us. Now start the show, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on site! Okay, welcome back. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 130, and I'm your host, Lee, beyond even your well-known working-class virility, Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. He's a geezer with a lot of stick. Harper, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I'm just, I'm just glad it wasn't, uh, what was it, Watch the Gap? Uh, <laughs> um, oh, you mean, Mind the Doors! <laughs> that one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of figured that would be the uh, that would be the line for me, but uh, no, we good job. I was going to give that one to Paul, but he had to drop out. So, oh uh, uh, well, you know. So you, you snooze, you lose, Paul. But yeah, we're going to be looking at Deathline, probably more well known up until the last few years as Raw Meat from 1972. Before we get into that, is there anything you've watched in the last little while you'd like to talk about, Daniel, or? Uh... Uh, not really. I mean, I guess the only thing was uh, Real Genius is now on uh, Netflix. Uh, this oh, yeah. is uh, one of my favorite films. It's a Val Kilmer uh, nerd movie. Um, it's kind of the good version of Revenge of the Nerds. I've talked about it a bit on this podcast. I think in our Revenge of the Nerds podcast, I uh, discussed it and uh, did get to rewatch that. Uh, my wife watched it with me and uh, as enjoyable as ever. I mean, this is really one of those underrated classics. I think uh, people don't know it well enough and it is on Netflix now. So go check it out, at least in the U.S. I don't know, uh, Canada and the rest of the world. But it is uh, one of those just phenomenal little 80s uh, geek movies that actually has a heart in it. When we uh, did Short Circuit, we talked about, you know, family-friendly comedies about uh, the military industrial complex, which is, uh, this is another one of that uh, one of that genre. So uh, check it out if you have not seen it. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I've been watching uh, lately, I did catch the, uh, the, the premiere of season four of uh, Better Call Saul. So, mm-hmm. So that was good, and I was I was relieved that I actually didn't have to rewatch season three to immediately just snap right into it. And I was, oh yeah, that happened, that happened, that happened. I know, I know exactly where I am, and that the writing on that show is fucking immaculate. Like, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I keep meaning to like catch up with that at some point uh, because I really loved Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. which I got into in the last year it was on, and then Better Call Saul kind of happened. And I was like, oh, but I was kind of burned out because I had kind of like spent a lot of time really like thinking heavily about uh, Breaking Bad for a while. And so I was like, ah, well, we'll see kind of how this how this lands. And I wasn't sure the concept was going to work, but it, it, all the reviews have been pretty phenomenal for it. And it, it sounds like it's really one of those kind of sleeper, you know, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it really is. It's a little bit lighter in tone in, in ways like it's a little bit funnier. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, just the the character sort of lends to, towards that, but it's also pretty fucking dark as well. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's getting really dark, and there's these little bookends with Saul where he's in his new life that he bought for himself near the end of uh, Breaking Bad. And he's the, what the manager of a Cinnabon is that? It? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> nice. and then 
things are not looking good for him. Let's put it that way. Uh, it seems like he's starting to get recognized by people. So, uh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Other thing I watched, I've watched the first five episodes of Castle Rock, the uh, Stephen King. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Related yeah show. How is that? It's actually really good. I like it. It doesn't. It, it subtly hints to like his books and stuff, but it's basically new stories. So it's set in Castle Rock, and all the stories in the books have happened in Castle Rock. They, they've happened. And this is just separate characters with their own separate stories going on in the actual town. And it's got a good little mystery in the center of it. It's pretty creepy. It's got Bill Skarsgård, who is uh, just uh, Pennywise the Clown in it, playing a different character here, of course, but equally kind of creepy in, in some ways. And it's going in a neat direction. Uh, it ticks all the sort of like little nerd glee you get from, oh, I know that reference, and I know that reference, and oh, Sissy Spacex, she played Carrie, so there's a nice little connection there, little meta connections and stuff like that. But at the same time, it doesn't depend on that. Like, it's actually so far, I've been enjoying the writing on it and the characters, and um, I don't know where the fuck it's going, which is good. Uh, that's, a, that's a good feeling, yeah. No, yeah. I like that. Yeah, so uh, I, I would suggest people who were hesitant check it out. It's definitely not the fucking Mist TV series, which was god-awful. This, this is one of the better uh, sort of King-related things, and, and I like it a lot. It hasn't been overtly giving you, like, connections to the books and stuff like that like like i said again just hints but at the same time you're always kind of secretly hoping like oh maybe one of these characters from one of these books is just going to jump in or uh maybe maybe there'll be some bigger reference to one of the books they'll just be a fun little easter egg or whatever but uh, yeah so far really good i think i heard if it gets picked up for a second season is basically going to do the uh, sort of like the fargo thing where it's uh, mm-hmm. a separate story every time with separate characters you know and there might be some Small connections here and there, but trying to explore different storylines within the Stephen King universe, I guess. So, yeah, yeah, it sounds. Uh, I mean, the the anthology TV series is definitely kind of returned, at least in terms of, uh, you know, the um, True Detective did that, and yeah. the uh, what's American Horror Story mm-hmm. every season, and they have kind of recurring like cast members and stuff. And I, it's 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 uh, it really works in sort of the modern like binge watching TV culture, in which you really can just tell a full story in 13 episodes and then just do something else next season. Right. You know? So yeah, no, uh, that, that sounds interesting. I'm not the hugest uh, King fan. So I, I, I'm more likely to pick up better call Saul <laughs> based on this conversation. Yeah. Uh, but it is nice to hear that, uh, that it's, it's making you happy and it's doing uh, the thing that it's trying to do because Stephen King adaptations on screen and particularly the small screen have been, uh, you know, variable in quality shall we yeah, say these these are light years above any of the abc miniseries so let's put it that way yeah so nice so we're going to cut off here for a quick break and play some promos for some podcasts that are excellent that you should check out play a little bit of music and uh, we'll come back with Deathline. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses all things Grindhouse, Exploitation, Drive-In, and B-Movies. Your three hosts, Mike. We're, we're going to discuss the Rene Martinez-directed picture, the $6,000. What? Time, Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the name of the Super movie. Super soulful, that's, brother. That's the name. When you that's start the movie. Your DVD cover. When you start the movie, the first thing that that's comes what it up says. is the title, and it says $6,000. Mark. And I've been around a girl stroking a horse's dick. Somehow, somewhere down the line, I'm going to use that clip against you. Shh. <laughs> Please do. 
and listener favorite Iris. The deployment sock. And I'm like, deployment sock? What the fuck is a deployment sock? He goes, you know, you know that sock that you just use? Oh my God, you guys are so gross. <laughs> See, so it happens for real. People do come inside. We'll make you question your political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop Sunday and can be found by searching for BB and BC Podcast via iTunes, Lipson, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and everywhere else you can download quality podcasts from. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at bbnbcpodcast.com. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Oh, necrophilia. Oh, oh, oh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, crude. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in it. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17 year olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything Dude, that kept little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at twelve years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How be did a rough you watch movie. this shit at twelve? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension of not only a film and sound, but mind. A journey into an auditory movie review adventure that must be experienced to be believed. There's a signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Doomsday Clock. You can extract the Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock podcast by either searching for WYCH on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, tune in, and on your Android device. Which versus the Doomsday Clock is a proud member of Legion Podcasts. So prepare yourself. The podcast ice is gonna break.
Okay, Deathline, also known as Raw Meat from 1972, directed by Gary Sherman, who has done has done a lot in the sort of horror genre. He, he's done Dead and Buried, which we're going to cover uh, fairly soon. He's also done the exploitation film Vice Squad, which is fairly notorious for various reasons. And uh, he also did the ill-fated Poltergeist 3, where the uh, young star there died during the uh, mm. filming there, yeah. It was written by Gary Sherman and his friend uh, Siri Jones, who did the screenplay. Interesting character, Siri Jones is actually, on, on, during the commentary, they talk a lot about him. He's like, he was like this Ozzy Osbourne-looking guy who smoked these really heavy Indian cigarettes, apparently, <laughs> and died age 43 or something like that <laughs> because of it. So, yeah. And just that he was a guy in Britain in the 70s is what you just uh-huh. told that's you know yeah. that, that's the that's just what I imagine every man you know a, a working class writer in Britain in 1973 was just that guy. <laughs> it is starring the excellent Donald Pleasance as Inspector Calhoun, Norman Rossington as Detective Sergeant Rogers, David Ladd as Alex Campbell, and David Ladd is the son of the Alan Ladd, Shane himself, as well as brother uh, to Alan Ladd Jr., who was head of Fox at the time. So hmm. kind of why he's in this. <laughs> he's <laughs> So you're going to put in, but uh, I think I think he earned his keep. Uh, we'll get into that. Sharon Gurney as Patricia Wilson. Hugh Armstrong as the cannibal, also credited as the man. June Turner as dying cannibal, credited as the woman. Clive Swift as Inspector Richardson. James Cossens as James Manfred, OBE. And Christopher Lee himself as Stratton Villers, MI5. And we'll get to a little synopsis here that I pulled from IMDb. It says... There's something pretty grisly going on under London in the tube tunnels between Holborn and Russell Square. When a top civil servant becomes the latest to disappear down there, Scotland Yard starts to take the matter seriously. Helping them are a young couple who get nearer to the horrors underground than they would wish. Written by Jeremy Perkins. Well, nice try, Jeremy. I'll give you about a 2.5 out of 5 on that one. I've seen this before several times, and I'll, I'll go to you, Daniel. Assuming this is your first time seeing it, so um... yeah, yeah, I uh, watched it for the first time this afternoon, this evening, actually. Um, I really enjoyed this. I, I think this is um, particularly the first like half of this. I had a really good time with uh, Donald Pleasance, who I, you know, obviously I've seen him and stuff, but I really haven't seen him be this kind of fun and amiable in anything before. <laughs> I really love this character. I wish we could like watch a whole series of Inspector uh, Calhoun films uh, yeah. where he's just kind of bumbling around and solving crimes and, you know, getting wasted in pubs and, uh, his, <laughs> you know, the, for a while we spent a lot of time, we spent so much time in that, like in his office at the beginning where he's kind of like questioning people and just basically being a decent cop. 
and you know he plays darts and you know he's just kind of like I did I just feel like it's such a uh such a single set. I almost, uh, I almost thought this was a stage play, like an yeah. adapted stage play for a while, because we spend yeah. so much time in that office, you know. Um, Seems like a BBC TV program or something. Yeah, like that, I mean, you know? this this does this does have. Um, I mean, and I, and I say this with no uh, insults intended. This does have have the feeling of a, of a BBC production in a lot of ways, although with uh, you know kind of more of a budget and more atmosphere. I mean, it feels like, even though it's obviously made in 1952, it feels like sort of a modern. BBC like TV production, right? But if it had been made then, you know, so yeah. sort of that prestige TV thing, but done then. And for anyway, it's kind of it's kind of got this weird feeling. Once the uh, once the kind of the uh, the more horror elements kind of show up and and they kind of kind of dominate the the end of the film, I really like the kind of central metaphor. I really and we'll kind of get into that. I think mm-hmm. I like the kind of the way that all these kind of plot lines uh, intersect. But the the more time we spend away from Donald Pleasant's kind of the less I enjoyed the film and the more mm-hmm. I kind of admired the film. Um, if that makes sense, just because I really just loved that character. I loved uh, kind of hanging out with, with him and getting away from that just kind of made me go, come on, I really wanted to follow this guy around. You know? But uh, <laughs> I think it's a really, really good film. It's definitely on the, on the list of possibles for best of the year for me. I'll, uh, I'll just kind of throw it back to you. Um, I do have a lot more to say about it, obviously, but I don't want to, you know, get into mm-hmm. that just yet so uh what are your overall you know what, what are your overall i mean you picked the film so obviously you thought it was going to at least be interesting so i'm assuming you uh you're a thumbs up on this as well yeah um big big way uh big big time thumbs up first off the thing that really does sort of st- stand out is the great performances i think everyone in this is actually really good it sort of ranges from solid to fucking great with donald pleasant yes. his, his character he's almost he's almost like a little kind of uh stealth class warrior almost in a way oh it's it's not stealth at all i mean <laughs> i mean it's it, it's amazing how overt the the class warfare is and uh, mm-hmm. certainly uh you know a, an inspector uh, god talking about class in this film is i mean this huge complicated thing because you know like police are not like well they're usually you know, they're not they're not in a place where they can be i mean police mm-hmm. are you know kind of essentially warriors against the working class and yet they also get coded as working class in order to make them into heroes in uh, popular fiction right um, and this does that but it also sort of like it sort of implies that the inspector position you know is sort it's almost like this bottom-up working class <laughs> there is this sense in which he's not actually employed by the police service but he's sort of like employed by like the the neighborhood Mm-hmm. Like through them direct, like he answers to them directly, and I think it's it's a really interesting kind of note that the film takes, and that you really get the sense that this guy is kind of just like he's not really a part of a police service as much as he is just the cop who just does everything. You know? yeah. <laughs> no, you, you you see this, and actually, you see this in quite a few British films and in some British horror films. I we we covered one on uh, the City of the Dead podcast. Me and James. The uh, I can't remember the fucking name of it right now, but it's one of Vincent Price and. Um, Christopher Lee is in that one as well. And Peter Cushing's in that one too, I believe, if I remember correctly. But there is another sort of hint towards the division between the sort of common police force and MI5. So there, there's even classism within that class of, you know. Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it definitely portrays, you know, the MI5, you know, Christopher Lee as being this, you know, high class scion of society. And definitely looking down at the the shit heels of the working class. And there's that. I mean, you know, the fact that you're like, yeah, there's a little bit of a class conflict here. I'm like, no, class is like <laughs> this film 
drips with class, you know, like that. I mean, it even subtly hints right at the beginning with it too, because the first shot you see in the train, it goes to all these different shots of very diverse people on the actual train. So you get a little strata of mm-hmm. basically everybody. Well, not everybody, but it gives you the at least gives you an obvious like, hey, there's some diversity in this culture at this time, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. This is a horror film that uses cannibalistic horror as like a comment on social inequality in the in the British class system and and it, it might be a little weird and foreign for some people who don't have a lot of experience with British films or British culture or cannibalism you know, or cannibalism yeah that too yeah. maybe P- people who maybe just uh, you know don't don't really see cannibals as fully human or you know like might might have a little bit of an issue with this uh, with this film and the, the depiction but uh, you know I thought it was a nuanced and sympathetic portrayal honestly oh, of, yeah. the, of the cannibal class so you know of the uh, people who live in the sewers and, you know, eat the bodies of the uh, people that they lure into unsuspecting. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, sh- I should mention I should mention for the for the list in case they haven't watched this. But, you know, honestly, if you haven't watched this, you just go away because uh, we're going to be spoiling the fuck out of it, too. So there there is a cannibal. He's living in the London Underground, under the un- London Underground, really. Basically, this is sort of based on... Somewhat based on real history, like, it uses references to, like, Sonny Bean, the, the cannibal clan in Scotland, the the, high, the family of highwaymen who were also cannibals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's got a bit of that to it. It's got a little bit of the Donner Party kind of reading because it's a disaster that forces cannibalism on a small group of people. But they were basically, and this is a real historical thing as far as what they used as laborers to do to dig out the London Underground and build it. They were using uh, basically just low-class Welsh and Irish people. They just shipped them in, probably just nominally better than slave labor, really. And when the tunnel in the story here, when the tunnel caves in, they're just forgotten about. They're just left because there's no money to dig them out. Well, the mining company went bankrupt. And what did you expect them to do? You know, like there's nothing you can do once you, you know, there's no money. So just let them die. I mean... Yeah, no, the the whole, you know, so many ghost stories, I mean, particularly here in the U.S. or in, uh, presumably in Canada as well, you know, so many, you know, every little town, every, you know, kind of, you know, Rust Belt town has its own kind of like local legend about, you know, there's some ghost or there's some, you know, spooky happenings happening, you know, somewhere. And um, ethnographers have looked into these things, have, have kind of gone through and said, okay, collected the stories and then like started looking into like what was actually going on historically. And almost always these stories derive from some actual real moment in which, you know, some striking laborers or something were, you know, beaten down and killed and, you know. Right. And uh, it's just this sort of suppressed history that we have and just kind of bubbles up through essentially ghost stories and, and these this, this kind of horror fiction. That's definitely what I was thinking of here is that it's treating, I mean, it does, I mean, I was kind of joking around about like treating the cannibals sympathetically, but it, I mean, it, it, to it the degree that it does treat them sympathetically you've got uh, basically two people alive at the you know kind of when we first kind of meet the cannibals one of them dies very very quickly um literally feasting on the on the blood of our uh, our rich yeah. guy um, james our, manfred ob obe there which uh, you know certainly not a uh, visual metaphor there that we're supposed to get no no out, not you know? not the the lowest of the lower class feasting on an upperclassman who is dollying around in like the red light district or whatever uh, of, of London looking for prostitutes uh, doesn't doesn't manage to find anything goes down to the uh, underground tries finds another woman tries to get her 
to to go with him, and she just ends up kneeing him in the balls and stealing his money, and then he becomes a victim of the cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. Uh, and then once we once we only have uh, she dies very quickly, the, uh, mm-hmm. the the woman cannibal, and then we just have the uh, the the man Hugh Armstrong, and uh, God, what a I mean. Donald Pleasance is is the reason to see this film, but that is uh, Hugh Armstrong gives a phenomenal performance as this. They, uh, yeah. they should put his picture next to like pathos in the dictionary. <laughs> right. It's a it's a really I mean, in, in the fact that he like he barely speaks, he's really only got you know one line of dialogue that he kind of repeats. I mean, you kind of get the sense that he just you know that, that these people have just kind of devolved into these you know. Uh, the subaltern, you know, beings of, of, you they're, know, they're basically, barely human anymore. You they're, know? Yeah, they're, they're basically troglodytes or something along those lines, right? I mean, I was kind of like, at one point I was like, why are they even wearing clothes? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I guess because it'd be really fucking cold down there because... Uh, you, sure, you, sure, but I mean, yeah. you know, the clothes are also in kind of good repair. I mean, there is this sort of, you know... It, we're seeing a kind of like fantasy kind of horror version of this. You well, know? I, I just assume it's from their victims, basically. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, no, I could, I could, yeah, I, I could buy that. Yeah, Fine. Sure. Make it yeah. make sense. It's a nice <laughs> conceit there. But I mean, yeah, it's, I, I just love the characterization and I, I like the extra details they put in it too, like how these descendants of these Victorian workers who have become cannibals, they're all carrying a form of the plague, which is just, yeah. uh, that's just a detail you wouldn't. Most people wouldn't think of these days to put in a movie, and it's, right. it's, it's just a great little thing. And yeah, I just like how sympathetic he is because he's not an evil character or anything. He's he's just sort of animalistic, but he's still got a bit of innate humanity in him as well. Like he, he's kind of like a Quasimodo or something like that, you know, like a tragic horror character kind of right. idea. And yeah, the the mind the doors thing that's kind of really creepy and sad. That's all he hears. the The world above him is that mind the doors being yelled and that's what they latch on to and he uses that for everything he's trying to say to anybody like, it's it's the i am groot of this movie exactly <laughs> yeah mind to the doors mm. and, uh, and in another movie and i mean this is this is a movie with a cannibal clan that predates texas chainsaw massacre by a year or so this was something really different and new for british horror at the time Essentially, this is doing what Hammer and Amicus were trying to do, but actually succeeding with it. Trying to make a film with a modern edge to it. And Hammer, like Hammer was putting more blood and boobs in their traditional gothic horror tales and stuff that they were doing in the old Universal Monster pastiches and stuff like that right and people were still you know were sort of running away from hammer because you know they were still like same old same old for the most part amicus their stuff was usually set in modern times but sometimes they went so overtly modern that they dated themselves or they were just a couple years behind uh, when when they did it and so they were that's why they were sort of slipping away but here you have uh i think rank uh corporation or whatever was was the one that funded this and here they they come up with this nice little film that doesn't feel as dated and actually has a nice modern edge to it because when it comes to like the money shots the gore and stuff and this is really really good yeah no i was i was kind of amazed at just how you know because in a lot of these films uh, particularly in this era you kind of get like quick glimpses of the gore you know in um you know, in kind of half light or, you know, deep in shadow specifically, you know, so that, you know, you don't have to, you know, it, it kind of looks fake so that you just don't spend a lot of time looking at it. 
this has, you know, you've got this like kind of long tableau shot here that will literally, you know, <laughs> linger over this, the, these, uh, these prosthetics and the, the, you know, presumably some people in makeup. I'm not sure exactly what, how the, how the technology was done, but it's completely effective. And a lot of it is just sort of, you sit and you stare at this and you're not necessarily sure what you're looking at at first. Mm-hmm. We spend it. I mean, it's a good, what, two to three minute sequence before you even see any kind of like human movement or anything. Yeah. Um, um, from what I was, from what I've read the shot, I, I didn't time it. Like the entire, just the entire tracking shot is supposed to be eight minutes. I don't think it was that long. Um, but it's, it's long though. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's basically a full magazine of film. You know, yeah. like this is, this is a definite, uh, it's a definite thing, but what I, um, most admire about it are, you know, what's, what's interesting about the way it's done is that, you know, for your, for, if you didn't know what this film was and you just kind of sat down to watch it, your first like 20, 30 minutes, you're basically watching this kind of goofy, fun police procedural yeah. with this missing person, you know, and, uh, these kind of college kids being college kids and this twatish American who like, you just kind of <laughs> want to die the entire time, yeah. you know, like. Yeah. Man, what a dickhead this guy is! You know, the girl, uh, what's her name, Patricia? Yeah, way better than he is. Like, oh, she's yeah. way better. But uh, you spend you spend a good uh, portion of the film kind of thinking this is oh this is our movie this is this is you know kind of what this is, and then suddenly you know right at the moment when you kind of get comfortable with that, it just cuts to I mean little like a rat gnawing on a piece of meat, you know, yeah. and flies and maggots and you know and you know it kind of it was definitely unsettling and upsetting in a way that you know a lot of times with these kind of films it's just kind of like oh it's ketchup or you know whatever but this mm-hmm. you know, because it does kind of linger on those shots and uh, I was uh, in the process of eating dinner at that at that moment <laughs> as well which was you know just a, a lovely experience to have but. uh no, it's 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 truly effective, and it's like in those kind of sequences. It's interesting just how good that sequence is, even kind of watching it on a, you know, on a television screen. You know, forty years later, um, I can only imagine what the cinematic experience would have been watching that stuff on a big screen with a captive audience. That's got to be, you know, super intense. People going into this, if you if you're like a modern horror fan and you're used to like violence every like. 10 15 minutes or something like that this that you're not going to see that here this film is definitely very slowly paced so it might turn off some newer film fans who are not used to the sort of uh, pacing in a film but man when it gets to its money shots it's worth it that long tracking shot i think any anyone who's like watched texas chainsaw massacre or something like that they can appreciate that long tracking shot because there's so many similarities to like inside the house with all the bones and stuff mm-hmm. on the floor and all that shit. The dead bodies all look great. The effects look too good in some places. And then you get these every once in a while, they just, they hit you with these really great little moments. I, I like the end of the tracking shot, by the way, where you get into the sad little mausoleum where you see all these generations of cannibals that they, mm-hmm. uh, they place in there. And then you get the scene where the cannibal attacks basically the janitors down there cleaning. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just like a surprise. It's like the light goes out, flashlight comes on. And then one of them staggers around the corner with a fucking shovel right in the middle of his head. (laughs) And then you get, you get a nice little uh, action scene or, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, kind of people struggling for, uh, for survival against this, uh, against this cannibal. And the, uh, uh, the, the black worker there was actually a professional wrestler. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I was, I was, I'm not familiar with him, but I was just surprised (laughs) to, uh, 
to, to read that and oh yeah okay so yeah I'll get him for the action sequence that makes sense you don't have to yeah. pay a stunt man you know also I just think while it's both sort of sad and touching and pathetic it's also just really gross the scene where he takes James Manfred OBE and slits his throat to uh, pour blood into his uh, dying mate's mouth to try to revive her <laughs> right and, and and the really fucked up sad thing is she's pregnant too she's dying and she's pregnant oh yeah yeah it's just and you, you can just see like the sadness in the cannibal's face like he's, he's just so desperate to to keep her alive and once she finally dies he's well i guess we got to replace her if i'm gonna keep our <laughs> family line going you know and i applaud this film as well because it takes a while to get to the rapiness uh you know it, it, it's yeah this- well and and it's it does put it does do the kind of woman in peril you know mm-hmm. refriger- you know it does fridge the female character let's let's not pretend it doesn't a little bit um, yeah but it's also, you know, based on the story it's telling where, you know, the this character is not, you know, it, it's almost, I mean, it's unfair to even think of it in terms of a, you know, sort of a rape scene because, yeah. you know, in the context of like this character's life, this is not, you know, this doesn't, it doesn't act in the same way that like a rape scene in like a sex comedy or something like that, you know, and where he, it's, it's, yeah. you know. He tries to sweet talk her too for a while first. You know, right, he, he, right, try, he tries right. to reason with her. Yeah, this woman, you know, doesn't want his advances. He's those. I, I brought you a rat. I brought yeah. you a rat. You know, like and then yeah. when when she's terrified of the rats, you know, he like kills the rat and he's like, "Look, I killed the rat for you. Come on, it's time." You know, he bites the head off of one he of them. Bites the head off a rat. You know, he <laughs> bashes one with a shovel or something, and yep. then you know, like, yeah, no, it's uh it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty hardcore what's going on in those scenes. And, uh, I mean, you know, it, it, this is definitely kind of, you know, it's tough to watch just on the, you, uh, the film is unsettling in those scenes because you're not sure what's going to happen. It doesn't feel like it's kind of fitting into a particular genre trope where, you know, it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of walled off from the rest of the film. And I think that's one thing that this film does really well. In a normal kind of structure, the college kids would find the the OBE guy, our Manfred, and then they would report it, and then they'd kind of leave the film. Yeah. But we kind of keep going back and visiting them. And at first I thought, oh, we're just kind of visiting them. Like, we're just, it's just sort of keeping them in the mix, because you know, not realizing kind of where the film's going to go and, like, you're, they're yeah. going to end up with them as well. But then, you know, we kind of get the inspector, and the inspector kind of has his, you know, there's some comedy, there's some, there's some you know, kind of, some stuff going on with him, you know, and then when we get, so we've got these kind of multiple different plot lines that are all kind of intersecting. And the fact that we kind of keep moving between the different storylines and the fact that we're not kind of trapped in this kind of conventional plot kind of means that anything can happen. You know, when the cannibal catches uh, Patricia and when he, I thought he was just going to kill her. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't like, you know, I just, I just, oh, well, she's dead now. That that kind of sucks. And then it doesn't quite go there. It goes to a different place, mm-hmm. which is, you know, an interesting choice. And then, and even then I thought, oh, she's going to like do something and he's going to kill her anyway. Yeah. You know, like, and then it turns out, I mean, she lived like basically, I mean, both <laughs> Everybody lives. I mean, everybody with a name lives in this film. I like the Patricia character. She's so good-hearted. Mm-hmm. Even at the end, even though for a while there she's terrorized and scared shitless of this cannibal, she still shows pity to him because she realizes he's just an 
he's just a victim of circumstances, right? She right. she actually when the when her boyfriend there attacks the can you know is fighting with the cannibal and stomps his head, basically curb stomps him in a way. <laughs> she's oh, like, God. no, yeah, she's like, no, stop, just just leave him alone, leave him alone. And then you see how pathetic this this poor uh, cannibal is when he pulls himself off the floor and he's like, mind the dose. <laughs> you know, he's just like, leave me alone. Please don't kill me. It's just so sad because all these guys, all these people, all these characters are just sort of victims of where they are in society, basically. Yeah. Well, but there's no, there's no class in this film at all. So. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, but, I, I really like her performance. Uh, Sharon Gurney, I guess is her name. And, uh, you know, I particularly like her in the in that kind of opening scene where uh, they do find the body in there. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of back and forth, and uh, you get the uh, the kind of that nifty bit in the in the elevator in the lift. Yeah, you know, where she's trying to get uh, David or Alex, Alex, she's yeah. trying to get Alex to uh, tell the constable about the body, and he's like, "Oh, it's just some drunk. It's just some drunk." You know, because he's an American asshole. Yeah, he's so jaded. He's so jaded. In New York, we just walk over these people. It's like, well, you know, maybe that says more about you than it does about Mm -hmm. anybody else. But um, no, uh, there's another great like little tracking shot where you spend uh, you know a a good like two three minute shot in that elevator. Yeah, um, and you get some some kind of panning back and forth, um, which is another uh, kind of impressively done. No, not as impressive as the uh, tableau over the meat, uh, but uh, yeah, another and, uh, another equally impressive kind of visual moment. Well, yeah, that's another just really great thing about this film that I love so much is that the characters are so well flushed out. Even the ones have who have very little to say, you, you get a set like the actors are so good. You get a sense of who everybody is. And there's other stories going on in the background that mm-hmm. you just don't get to see. Like, you get the feeling like, yeah, Inspector Calhoun and Detective Sergeant Rogers, they have a whole series that they've they've done, you know? Like, they've done all this stuff. They have this history together, and they have these little private jokes, and Calhoun's always, you know, sort of ragging on Rogers a little bit, you know, like, a fuck off. I mean, and- they, they, feel, they feel like uh, like a TV, you know, buddy cop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. If you, you feel like you're you're just you're you're just kind of wandering in on these two guys just doing their little adventure story, and then uh, you know, well, this one ended up being about cannibals, but most of the time it's like you know, and then we foiled the person at you, or you know, yeah, exactly because he, he doesn't he doesn't look like he has a lot to do, like right, yeah, he, he gets one or two cases a year or something like that, you know. But then I mean, uh, Christopher Lee's character Stratton Villiers or Villers. MI5, he obviously has a history of Calhoun, because Calhoun's like, oh, I figured you'd show up, you know? And right. They, and they have this little exchange. You, you you know they've done this a couple times together. Yeah. Um, Christopher Lee just shows up, and he's almost like the Bond villain of the, uh, you know, he, he's... Both of them are Bond villains! I know they are. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, in, in structurally here, like, he shows up, and you're like, oh, he's the real villain. And, of course, he is the real villain in, in mm-hmm. You know, it's that that that's kind of what the film is about. The, even the cannibal, even the per, even the person literally like killing and eating people isn't is not really you know the villain of the film. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, but um, of course, you know, he's the one who has to suffer for it. <laughs> yeah, and even there's a there's like a little hint of a love triangle between Alex, Patricia, and the uh, guy at the bookstore. There's just a that little. There's there's, there's there's definitely something going on there for sure. Definitely, uh, I, I like I like it all. I, I just I yeah, love how no. it, it's a really well written film. 
and sadly, uh, you know, one that kind of died in the U.S. Well, so what's the uh, so we watched the version. So I watched the version on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a two dollar rental. It's totally worth two dollar rental. Just leave it at that. And that one is Deathline. So what is okay. the what's raw meat? What's the you know what's the, what's the different cut? Raw meat is the version that AIP picked up, and there were some weird. Um, deals there that were sort of like funneling money different ways it's all very complicated but basically it was kind of like a scam kind of thing like oh yeah we'll pick this one up and like take a loss on it for something else or something like sure, that yeah um they cut the fuck out of it as far as the money shots the the, the shovel to the forehead that's shortened the uh broken broom handle impaling uh the poor black janitor my that favorite is- bit with that broom handle it's when they find it in the in the uh, autopsy room. Yeah, and uh, he's got part of it in a bag, and then there's still like a bit of a viscera hanging off the <laughs> end of it, like wagging as he's like moving it around. And then the um, Pakistani, you know, med tech, you know, he's literally like having to put plastic <laughs> over it <laughs> as they're moving it around. Like, get this out of my face, dude! Like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, no. Clean it off. The fact that there's still like a bit of intestine or whatever, like yeah. the, the end of the thing. There's some good little sort of British gallows humor in in those scenes as well, where he's just where Inspector Calhoun's sparring with the doctors and stuff. You know, again another another little hint of like background stuff with them, where the doctor follows up on, oh here here's what I found in the blood sample we got from the cannibal. You know that's that's on there. You know, he's got the plague and stuff like that. And he's, you sound really tired, Inspector. You you sure you shouldn't, you know, maybe get some sleep or something like that? You know, it seems like they actually have a previous relationship, you know, kind of. Yeah, like, yeah. And, then, and then he hangs up the phone. He's like, he's like, basically, Callan's like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think most of us have a working relationship with someone that are that we're kind of like that with. Now, yeah. one of my favorite scenes is when they go to the pub, like literally they're like, yeah. We're gonna oh. we're gonna knock we're gonna knock off from like we're we've done our we've done our time. This is all we can do for the night, and then we're just gonna go hang out at the pub for and, until closing and, time. And then we go and we watch them in the pub for you know five minutes, and they play <laughs> pinball and like they're just adorable together. <laughs> they get so drunk and they're just and they and they're they're abusing the uh, good uh, nature of the publican. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. It, Okay, we're closed, and we're also way past the ten minutes grace period of finishing your drinks and getting the hell out of here. Right. <laughs> and I, I just love—I I, want to be in that pub. I just want to be. Oh in the yeah, no. pub. Don't you? I—I I was sitting there watching it, and I'm like, you know, Lee and I could go and have a really nice time drinking, downing some pints and a double scotches because that's the—you uh, know—he—he's got a pint in his hand, and he's like, all right, we're moving on to scotch, and presumably they're not drinking like top shelf scotch, but no, uh, they're 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 drinking like white and McKay or something like yeah. that, and and they're drinking it out of little sherry glasses. I love yeah, that, <laughs> which is great, which is great. Uh, uh, but yeah, back to the to the raw meat version of this. So yeah, they they, they cut down the shovel scene, the uh, broken broom handle scene. They apparently cut a shit ton out of the tracking shot of the cannibal's lair as well mm-hmm. to shorten it up. And I guess AIP basically just didn't promote it all that well. They just sort of s- stuck it in their rotation and threw it out there and it didn't do very well. It did very well in Britain and I guess in Europe, but did not do well at all in America because they basically just didn't promote it. So 
Well, yeah, and I mean, this is a weird film to, I mean, again, you sit down and you start watching it, and, and I mean, you could be forgiven for thinking this is kind of like a funky detective story. Mm-hmm. You know? And then suddenly it just becomes this, like, you know, horror film halfway through. I yeah. mean, it's called Death Line, so I guess that gives you a hint about, you know, what kind of film you're watching, but uh, I mean, yeah, it looks, I mean, it's 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 a deliberate uh, kind of bait and switch a little bit here. You know? they, mark, they marketed it as a zombie film. <laughs> okay, so that shows you the, that, that that's on the on the backs of uh, Night of the Living Dead was still playing in repertory houses. Yeah, you know? I mean that that shows you where Samuel Arkoff was when he was like, "Oh, we got this film. Yeah, let's just call it a zombie film, pal, and throw it out there." You know, the, the kids won't give a shit. We're gonna call it Night of the Living Dead Three. That's what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, almost on the level of the the Italian renaming yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, Rom Colin. <laughs> this definitely has zombies in it. Come watch this, please. That's that's the title in America. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Want to go through some trivia here? A little oh, please, bit? let's. I mean, yeah. I feel like this is such a good film. I just, but I feel like it's also kind of you know sit down and watch it and, and like the the listeners should go see the film. And get the pleasure out of it without us kind of really detailing everything that's in it. That's amazing mm-hmm. because it really does have like a whole lot of amazing stuff. But it's kind of difficult to talk about it in this context because you really, should, you know, I really do just want to like sit down scene by scene and go like, and then this bit happened. That was really cool, right? And yeah. you know, I really love this this little exchange because he really does like. I, there's a moment like Donald Pleasance where uh, you know he is interviewing Alex, and then the the sergeant is interviewing Patricia, and then they kind of get on the phone together. <laughs> the sergeant says, you know, oh yeah, I think she's telling the truth, and you know then. Donald Plus goes, yeah, my guy was telling the truth too. Even yeah. though, like, and, and you see, like, oh no, this is just his investigative technique. You know, this is just the way you ask questions. Is you sort of accuse him, you kind of put it, get him off his guard, and then when you know his story kind of holds up, it's like, oh yeah, he's probably telling the truth. So, oh, know. but but Donald Pre- Donald Pleasance doesn't let it go though. He's a prick because <laughs> he, he enjoys being a bastard. Because uh, as soon as he's done the interview with Alex, he's like, cut your hair. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> There's definitely like you hippie kids uh, kind of kind of moment there. Um, I love that he he finds out that uh, you know David is uh, going to school for uh, probably Alex David Lad Alex yeah. Campbell is character. I love that he finds out Alex is going to school for international economics, quote unquote. He asks him a question about the uh, the common market, which you know, <laughs> forty years later, you know, let's let's just weep over that whole concept, you know, what's going on in Britain right now. We're we're at the tail end of that little experiment, and uh, that's yeah. going great for everybody. Uh, for yeah, everyone's everyone's loving it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's huge. Uh, yeah, this was uh, filmed. Everything here you that you see is uh, filmed in uh, authentic locations. So this was filmed in Oddwich uh, Underground Station in Holborn, Russell Square Underground Station in parentheses. So I guess that's kind of a separate thing that, uh, as far as I'm pulling from IMDb here. And then around locations in Russell Square. So I guess all the buildings and stuff you see are all uh, basically authentic uh, British location stuff too. I don't think anything in this is actually studio as far as I can tell. So uh, nice. that's cool and i wouldn't expect it what it is because if you look at the police office um when you're in there you can see out the window and you can see like just you know stuff in the street <clears> happenings <throat> yeah. 
obviously not studio stuff. The film is set in an uncompleted London underground station called Museum on a non-completed underground line somewhere near the real underground stations, Russell Square and British Museum, the latter of which was closed in 1933. No such line or station exists, but it is noticeable that it was partly filmed in Aldwych, which has become more famous as a film set since its closure in 1994. Apparently, it's been more profitable now as a film set than it ever was as a tube station. (laughs) Currently, Aldwych may reopen as part of an expansion of the Docklands Light Railway, which would reopen the most convenient station for London Office of High Commission of India. Okay. That's something I definitely have an opinion about. (laughs) (laughs) No, I have no context for this. Good. Yeah, Uh, I'm I'm sure our British friends will mock us later in Twitter for just fucking this all up. So the full uncut version of this was not passed by the BBFC for DVD release until March 2006. Nice. Was this on the Video Nasties list? I don't know if it was. I, I didn't see any trivia saying it was Video Nasties, but it definitely sort of lived and died in England and then basically did nothing in America and was just kind of disappeared for a long time. I don't even think it got VHS until late. Oh, run. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting piece of trivia and this is true. Hugh Armstrong's role as the cannibal was originally to be played by Marlon Brando, but he, he he had to to bow out because his uh, son Christian was ill with uh, pneumonia. So. Can you imagine Marlon Brando in that role? That's pre-apocalypse now. You know, that's <laughs> apparently wow. he was, apparently he was really jazzed to do it. Um, uh, and also, I'm kind of glad he didn't. Uh, yeah, just, just he would have really outweighed this. You know, suddenly you'd be looking at Marlon Brando as opposed to a great performer. You know, it would. Yeah. It would. You know, sometimes the actor really does just you know sort of sort of. It's a marquee star. You can't look at the marquee star and not see the marquee star. Yeah, yeah. He would come through the makeup. It would just be Marlon Brando. Christopher Lee was friends with the producer of this. That's how they got him on. They got him on for scale because apparently his asking price at this point was... uh, Maybe Gary Sherman is sort of blowing this out of proportion a little bit, but he claims that Christopher Lee's asking price at this point was bigger than the budget of this film, which I kind of doubt... I'd like given to given the amount of crap that Christopher Lee was doing around that time period, I find that a little bit hard to believe, especially since this film does not look, you know, especially well, cheap. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. Uh, Christopher Lee was doing a lot of crap, but most of it actually sort of came after this period. At this at this point, he was actually basically the top European star. He was sort of uh, commanding. Well, yeah, I guess I guess it's sort of like, uh, you know, I'm thinking about like, you know, Nick Cage also did a lot of crap, but he got paid a lot of money to do that yeah. crap, so, you know, it was fine. Yeah, but uh, but Christopher Lee, he, he was just jazzed to do it as long as he didn't, apparently his quote is, as long as he didn't have to wear fangs. Uh, yeah, there's even a Dracula joke in the film, but that's not directly mm-hmm. Lee, so you know, I was, I knew Christopher Lee was coming up, and then suddenly there's a there's a Dracula joke, and I was like, oh god, yeah. But uh, he he just wanted to do it because he wanted to work with Donald Pleasance, and Donald Pleasance wanted to do this because he liked the comedic aspect of his character. And oh he, yeah, no, 
It's great. It's cool. so great. I want to see more Donald Pleasants doing this. Like this is yeah. he's so so fun and like have this like rivalry with Christopher Lee across eight movies. You know that would be great. This oh this character and like you know Captain Kronos are the like I really wish there was more of this that I could sit and watch. Yeah, me too. Jesus. So if you notice, there's only like one or two real shots where they're together in the same shot. This was done deliberately because Donald Pleasance is. He was five six at best, <laughs> right. um, and you'll note you'll notice his uh, uh, Rogers there. He's like five four. He's even shorter, and and then this thing. Christopher Lee is like what six three or something like that. He yeah, Christopher Lee was a foot and a half taller than almost everybody else in the cast as, as far as that goes. So it's like we can't have that happen because uh, Donald Pleasance basically said. I'm not going to stand on a stool. And Christopher Lee said, I'm not going to kneel down in these shots. So, <laughs> so they did separate shots. So they wouldn't have, <laughs> they had to do like P- Peter Jackson style, Lord of the Rings, like first perspective <laughs> shots. <laughs> you, you'll notice the only time that they share a, a shot on screen together is when Christopher Lee is uh, sitting down on the couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's I did not great. notice that, but I will definitely have to rewatch this with that, uh, with that uh, in mind. Mm. And uh, honestly, the only other thing I, I want to mention before we wrap up here is there's a couple of movies I would recommend to people to watch with this movie in a double feature. Uh, none of these movies, I don't think anyone involved in them have sort of cited this movie as an inspiration, except for Guillermo del Toro, uh, who is a big champion of this film. Well, yeah, you can definitely see that. Yeah, but of course, his mimic from 1997, yeah. very similar kind of themes here. Isolated society preying on people up uh, above ground. Um, of course, it's mutated cockroaches that are killing people, but it's still the same kind of concept, really, in a way. Um, I mean, mutated cockroaches, you know, members of the 19th century working class. I mean, it's yeah, kind yeah. Of one of the same, right? You know, I mean, Mutated cockroach, you know, mimic creatures, and the Irish, you know, ultimately identical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a movie from 2004 called Creep that is essentially basically a remake of this. It, it's It's got more slasher elements to it. it. It sort of changes up the antagonist's origins a little bit, but it's essentially the same premise, and it's uh, basically centers around a... Um, German tourist in, well, not tourist, but, you know, German woman living in London who uh, gets caught in the underground after it closes and is hunted by this monstrous individual in, in the underground who is, is killing people and stuff. And the only other one I'll mention, and this one's really excellent, I think people should watch this one. They should go out of their way to see this one. It's a found footage film from 2011 called The Tunnel. It's an Australian film, and it's fucking excellent, and it really sort of borrows a lot of the same sort of story ideas from uh, Deathline and and implements them in this, and it's really, really fucking good. I really like that film. So uh, Awesome, yeah. Yeah. People should check those out. But yeah, uh, big thumbs up for me on this film. I love. Oh it. yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, this is this is definitely on the uh, on the possibles of, of best of the year list for me. Um, yeah. And uh, Donald Pleasance's performance in this is, uh, you know, if if we do a you know top list of performances, I mean, he's he's right up there with you know, Anne Margaret and everything we've mm-hmm. done this year with her. You know. Yeah. But I, I honestly think you know without him in this film, I you know. I certainly wouldn't enjoy it nearly to the same degree, you know. Um, yeah. I think he really makes this film, and, I, and for me, it's just I love seeing him doing 
this kind of work because we hardly ever see him get to do something this just this funny and just this kind of like charming and affable and you know just really kind of portraying this kind of character instead of you know the kind of more you know the Donald Pleasancy things that we are kind of used to him doing more you know this is so, this is this is not Doctor Loomis this is not I shot him six times. No, it's nothing. It's nothing like that. So, so yeah. Um, not sure exactly what we're going to be doing uh, next time, but uh, we will let you guys know on the Facebook page. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. Best way to find out what's coming up. Sometimes that's how I find out what we're doing. Is one of the shows up on the Facebook group, and I'm like, "Oh, that's the movie. Okay, got it." Yeah. Sometimes I, I just I barely talk to Daniel. I don't ever I don't ever say anything to him. I, I, I find out like 15 minutes before we're gonna record. Like, oh yeah, by the way, you you watch this right? Okay, you gotta gotta go fast forward. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he really pauses it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't watch these movies. I just read the uh, Wikipedia summaries, and then uh, you know we just record based on that. That's the that's the way we manage this most of the time. Yeah, you can hear a lot more of these trade secrets if you join our Patreon and get to the twenty five dollar tier and yeah. uh... <laughs> <laughs> pay us twenty five dollars a month, and we will have a beer with you virtually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, until then, uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And mind the dolls! (laughs) Cheers.
You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Facebook group links, as well as podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>